Well, good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today we look at the good news of God's grace as contrasted with a false presentation of the gospel found in the book of Galatians. Paul writes to the churches that have been taught a lie about salvation in that they mix faith and works so that the requirements of the law are once again holding them prisoner. Thanks for listening as we take a close look at our redemption with the exclusiveness of the gospel, not of works and grace, but of grace alone. Uh, We used to play a game when I was young uh, in the living room. I think, I'm not sure how crazy my parents were about it, but my sister and I loved it. Uh, We called it hot lava. There's a lot of different names for it, but basically what you would try to do is take the couch cushions and spread them all around the floor and then jump from one to another without touching the ground ever. Now, I'm going to need a volunteer, so Phil, would you mind coming up here again for a minute? And uh, I might warn Peggy. Uh, I'm gonna need. Uh, I'm gonna probably need you, and even Teresa a little bit later in the service. So just a just a heads up there for what's coming. Now, now there's a reason I didn't ask one of the ladies to come up here. How much do you weigh, Phil? 190. <laughs> he's a 200. What he said. So <laughs> no, 190. He said. So uh, could you lift something that was over 100 pounds? No. You couldn't lift it at all. 50 no. pounds. Yes. Okay. He could lift 50 pounds. Could you move it from one place to another? Yes. yes. Yeah. So if we had 200 pounds worth of anything, Phil says he could move it eventually, right? You're strong enough to do that. 200 pounds? Uh, if you broke it into pieces, right? Oh, yeah. 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 Um, could you come over here? There's a little rope that you'll you'll see right right over there. Uh, just un- un- undo the rope just a little bit for me. Good. All you need is about six feet or so. Good. And now grab two ends of it. It's like a jump rope. There you go. And then, so let it go onto the ground and hold two ends, and then just stand on it and face everybody. You got an amulet? Where's Chris Walden? (laughs) Good. So just just stand on top of the rope. You got to stand on it there. Very good. Just like that. Good. Now, we know that he can lift about 200 pounds, right? Phil, I want you to try to lift yourself up there. Just give a good, good heave, good pull. (laughs) Come on. Do you move anywhere? <laughs> it really, really doesn't move anywhere. Um, he he could lift things on its own, but notice something, folks. He can't lift himself. Now, as much as he would try, as much as he would pull, he's not going to budge off the earth. Now, we could try a couple of strategies with him. You know, you could try the old encouragement, the carrot. Right? Come on, Phil. You can do it here at church. Give him a good encouragement. Come on, lift, pull. You can do it. All right. <laughs> All right. That doesn't seem to be working. We might try some of our uh, military friends. Uh, you know those. Uh, those sergeants, what are they? Lieutenants? What, what are the ones that are yelling at you? Drill sergeant. Let's try that. Come on, you maggot. Let's go here. <laughs> That's, that doesn't seem to be working either. Thank you, Phil. You, you get, would you give him a big round of applause for coming up here? Let me, let me show you that. Thank you. Uh, the, the depiction here of somebody who tries to lift themselves uh, is... is really a similar problem that I see strewn throughout Christianity. The idea that you, if you just worked harder, if you, if you just tried a little bit, if you just put a little more effort into it, you would become a better person. And what that is, is a rejection of God's grace. Because you would be saying, I can do this on my own. I don't need any help at all. 
And the reason why this is in our world today is because the God of this age is self-identity. That's the God of this age. Somebody who says, I am a self-made man. I don't need anybody's help. And when you come with a message of good news, of grace and mercy, what you're doing is attacking that God. And people reject that, and they don't want anything to do with that. And unfortunately, this attitude of self-actualization or self-esteem or self-righteousness, put self in front of any term that you want for ability, what that has done is turned into a type of teaching within God's people that say all you need to do is just try a little bit harder, just do a little bit more. In fact, I was listening uh, with my family on the way back from vacation this past week uh, to a, I'm going to use Christian in quotes, but a Christian radio station um, that was talking about, uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a viewer call-in or a listener call-in, and one lady called in and she was just beside, she was literally on the brink of tears, asking the, the minister there uh, to pray for her that she would find... Um, a husband because uh, of the brokenness in her life and she has a son who needs a, f- a father figure in his life and uh, and she you could just sense the woundedness and the answer from this minister was well w- we'll pray for you but I'm going to offer you a, a, a special saint and if you pray to this special saint they will likely off- answer the prayers because they specialize in that issue, and then, you, and then the minister encouraged this uh, this woman uh, to pray a certain set of beads. I won't name what what it's called, but it's kind of a routine set of prayers. And as long as she continues to do that, she would really find answer to her problems. Now, it, it's not only in uh, our neighboring Christian communities; this creeps its way into the evangelical community as well. There, there are really only two kinds of Christians. And they're mutually exclusive from one another. There's a type of Christianity that stands upon the gospel alone. That's called an evangelical Christian. That, that's the tradition that we worship in here. And the gospel says, hey, tough news, you can't do it on your own. You can do nothing on your own except sin. And so you've worked your way to hell, but God wants to redeem you from hell. And then there's another version of Christianity that says, well, God's done most of the work, but you've got to do a little bitty bit. Just you got to do this little tiny part. And, and then as you do this part, God will then do his part. And it's this syncretistic type of teaching. Instead of monergism, which would be one worker, you have synergism, which is multiple workers working together. Um, you understand those are mutually exclusive concepts? That those are, you can't have both of those working at the same time. It's either one or the other. The subject that I want us to pay attention to as we are declaring here out in the open to the whole world, the good news is the subject of redemption. Now for this purpose, we're going to look at an awesome passage of Scripture. It's in the book of Galatians. If you have your Bibles on this windy morning, I invite you to take them out, turn with me there, Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to read just a couple of passages in chapter 3, as soon as I get to the right page. And as you're turning to Galatians 3, let me give you a little background here for uh, what Paul's doing, who he's writing to. There are a bunch of churches in a region that is commonly referred to as Galatia. 
All right, so he's not writing to any single church. He's writing to like a community of churches. So you could think of it as something like Dickinson County, right? That if this was written today, that would be the title of the letter, right? But so Galatians is written to a bunch of churches, and in these churches, you have two different philosophies of the good news. One philosophy says it's the gospel alone, and another philosophy is by some some Christians who come from a Jewish background. So the church is multi-ethnic. The church has always been intended to be, and might I even just add here a little parenthesis, God's people have always intended to be multi-ethnic. Even in the time of Israel, the, the, the promise given to Abraham is that he would be a blessing to the Gentiles, right? So God's plan was always for all people. But as the church began to gather together multi-ethnically, what you found is some people had a custom that was built only on the teachings of Jesus in the Bible, and then these Jewish believers carried with them some additional requirements. Namely, that you needed to do certain things in order to be saved. You needed to take faith and add works to your faith. That's the problem. In this multi-diverse, multi-geographically spread set of churches, the Apostle Paul is writing them to handle this issue as to which of these two philosophies is the correct one. Now, I, uh, I love the book of Galatians. There was one time on the mission field, I, uh, I was just going to preach one passage, and I preached the whole book. A couple people fell asleep in that sermon, but that's okay. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, we're only going to do a couple of verses and then just focus really in on only one. I got six different observations that will help us identify the characteristic of good news. Of good news. You want to know what bad news is? Bad news is you got to work harder. Come on, maggot, work harder. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and then you will be better. That's bad news. But we're going to look at some good news today. So Galatians 3, starting in verse 10. Paul writes, All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law. Because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. This is good news. Now, here's what I want to do for the remainder of our time. We're going to move quickly through these, so I want you to put on your thinking caps and seat belts. Are you guys ready to go? Give me an amen if you're ready. Okay, uh, we're going to have a... Thank you. Thank you. We're going to have a little Bible study together, okay? And, and look at some other verses. When we're looking at the good news that has been described to us here in Galatians chapter 3, I want to pay attention to verse 13. The first 
characteristic of the good news is that it is transactional. If you have your sermon notes, that's the first blank there. The good news is transactional. You guys know what a transaction is? Now, here's the reason why I'm bringing this up. Because if you read verse 13, the very first verb here is that Christ redeemed us. That is an awesome word. To be redeemed means to be bought back. That would be more of the English derivation of it. So in English, it comes from kind of some old Latin words uh, to buy and to rebuy. So to redeem is to purchase back. But it's rooted in the original language here. Uh, Specifically, in this context, it means this. You ready? To buy back slaves. That's what it means. To be redeemed means that there has to be some type of a transactional interaction of payment that has been made. Now, our New Testament reading came out of the book of 1 Corinthians. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus had no sin. But God made him into a kind of sin offering on whose behalf? Who do you think? Do this. Say, on on my behalf. Turn to your neighbor. Say, on your behalf. It means that you and I have been purchased back in the debt that we owed. Now, do you know that you owe a debt? It's a tough thing, you know. Uh, It says that the borrower is slave to the lender, and and you have been put in debt. But do you know who put you there? I'm going to ask you to point to yourself one more time. You and I have placed ourselves in a position of not being able to pay God back ever. Because we do not have the pockets deep enough to pay back an infinite being. God is an infinite being. You are a finite being. So you could pay every penny that you have and you could never pay back the debt that you owe. And do you know what caused the debt? It was sin. Think of the first sin. How bad was it? They ate an apple. Or maybe not an apple. They ate whatever it was. That's all that it consumed. And that one act of rebellion separated this finite creature from the infinite God in a manner by which they could not repay. One sin did it. How many sins do you have today? Could you list them? Could you write them out? What kind of a debt do you owe? I I hasten to think about in my own life the, the number of lists that would need to be made for the ways in which I have both conditionally decided to walk away from God because I wanted to pursue my own way or in the ways that I even am unaware of because I am a cursed creature fallen from this world. It's like a book. And if one could separate me from God, what does the list do to us? Here's the good news. You have your bill paid. That's what the word redeemed means. And so the very first characteristic of the good news is that it is transactional. In 1 Corinthians, this was the verse I was thinking of, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you have the same word that's used there. Um, Paul says, um, to honor God with your bodies because you were bought with a price. So what was the price that was paid? 
If you go back, you'll remember in the garden, God said, if you eat of this tree, you will surely what? There's the transaction. Sin needs to be paid with death. Now, a ultimate and infinite death is the kind that separates you from God forever. Well, you and I as finite creatures would pay that infinitely. Jesus is an infinite creature such that he could pay the penalty at a finite moment on the cross, dying for the sins of mankind, for your sins, for mine. And he is able to repay that debt to God. So there are, there are commentators, in fact, even Christians that get really kind of uncomfortable with the idea that it's actually an indebtedness to God. They think, well, can't God just do away with it, right? Can't God just say throw, to throw it out and God can do anything, right? Haven't you heard that? Come on now, you guys have heard that. Let me tell you this, God cannot break his own word. And when God said death is the penalty for sin, what was he going to uphold? Death needed to be the penalty. This is why Jesus had to die. To be redeemed means that a transaction has been made. It has been the price of Jesus' death on your behalf so that you are not infinitely separated from God. All right, secondly, the good news means liberation. If you look back with me in the text, verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from what? You see what it says? From the curse of of the law. I, if you have your Bibles, I'd like to just have you uh, look over into verse 23 a little bit. It says, Before faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. The Bible teaches us that we are, before Christ, we are enslaved to sin. Like a prisoner. You're locked up. In fact, that which has locked you has been God's word of righteousness. And unless you are able to meet his requirements, you will remain chained. You will be, remain as one who is locked behind bars. And so the good news means freedom from that. It means liberation from that. You know, for these uh, folks coming to Galatia, the Jews that were coming saying you needed to do certain things, they looked at God's law and they saw freedom, but the law doesn't deliver freedom. The law actually delivers imprisonment. Jesus delivers you freedom. Now, there are at least three ways that, that this happens in our world today that confuses people. The first is because they rely on their own ability. I'd like to direct you back in the text, back to verse 10. Do you remember that's where we started this morning? Verse 10 says, All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. That's the first problem. Some people think, and some preachers preach, if you just try harder, if you just do these things... I heard on the radio this morning, listen to Christian radio, there was a person giving a testimony that they felt like God had met with them and that they were whole because they went to church. It's so subtle, folks. It so subtly creeps in the idea that you are doing well because you did something. That is not good news. You are relying on on works at that point. You are relying on observing the law. So that's the first problem. The, the second would be that there are people uh, who think that they can do it perfectly. Let me direct you to verse 12. This is a, whew, this is a tough one. Uh, I'm sorry, not verse 12. Verse, um, back to verse 10. It says, Cursed is everyone. So who does that mean? 
Yeah, the Greek word here for everyone is everyone. So cursed is everyone who doesn't continue to do what? Everything. The Greek word here for everything means everything written in the law. That's kind of bad news, don't you think? If you're going to try to keep the law, how much of it do you have to keep? You have to keep all of it. For if you fall at any one point, you're guilty of breaking all of it. In fact, uh, let me, if you have your Bibles, just turn over to chapter 5 real quick. Just to, just to show you this point again in uh, a kind of uh, resonance from God's Word. Chapter 5 and verse 3, Paul writes, Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised, and by the way, circumcision here is that uh, action uh, describing obedience to the law. So it's not talking about present day or health reasons or medical. This is, this is a component of obedience within the law, standing as kind of a summary for all of the law. That's what circumcision means here. So I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised, look what it says. He is obligated to obey what? The whole thing. So, folks, if you, if you want to try to impress God with any one type of work in your life, you if that's what you're going to rely on, you got to do all of it then. All right, and the last, the last thing that this becomes uh, a, a difficulty is not only do you have to do it all, you have to do it perfectly. So you, you might give it a good swing, right? You might step up to the plate and be like, I'm going to pray every day. I'm going to just be the best Christian, except, except for today, right? Then Because you forget or, or whatever that might be. You, you tried, but guess what happened? You failed. I, I tried to do the whole thing. You not only have to do the whole thing, you have to do the whole thing perfectly. Three things. You're relying on the law, you have to do the whole law, and you have to do it all flawlessly. Do you know who actually did? Yeah, I, the, Paul in another argument, both in Romans and Galatians, is, is going to say, we're not saying the law is bad. The law is correct. Here's the problem. You can't keep it. It's like when I was taking piano lessons when I was seven years old. Man, I had this one teacher, and I, I should have practiced more. Folks, let me just confess in church. I should have practiced more. Is there an amen? Yeah, okay, yeah. So I should have been practicing more, but instead I was playing outside making forts. I'm pretty sure that's what I was doing instead of practicing my lesson. But she would sit me down, and I had to play the part. I had to do the piano lesson just right. And as I'm following along, if I made a mistake, you know what she would make me do? I had to start over again. So I go back to the beginning and I try it again and I get it wrong again. And she'd say, no, it sounds like this. And then she'd play it and it was like this. Just, whoa, it's lovely. And I'm there's no way I could do that. So once more, clunking on the keys, make a little mistake. And she said, nope, start over again. I was a, I was a prisoner, guys. Mom, I was a prisoner. I like yeah. <laughs> Hear me now. That's what you are. That is what you are if you are relying on the philosophy of Christian hope that says it's up to you. Maybe just a little bit. You have to, you have to just do this one thing. I'm sorry. What am I relying on at that point? I'm relying on my ability, and I don't have to just do one of it. I have to do all of it, and I have to do it flawlessly. And if I don't, i got to go over and start again. Except it's even worse than that. Because all it takes is one mistake to eternally separate you from God. That's all it takes. One transgression of the law, and you're done. And you are locked up. So this is why the good news 
means liberation because back to verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Are you, are you getting it this morning? Are you catching this? You no longer are enslaved to a kind of forced reliance and obedience on your ability. He has purchased you from that. You're free from that. That is good news. Number three, the good news is justice. The good news is justice. And if you look at the next phrase, how did Jesus do this? Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by what? Becoming a curse. Yeah, God, God can't just throw the case out. If God were the kind of judge where you were to come, and maybe you've known judges like this, or you've heard stories, right? Maybe the judge and the, the, the one convicted here or accused, maybe they were drinking buddies or uh, dart-throwing buddies, or maybe they grew up together, right? And so the judge looks and he says, ah, hey, gives them a little wink. We'll let them off. We'll, we'll let them off scot-free. What do you say about that kind of a judge? Good or wicked? That, that is not, that judge is not upholding justice. That would be a wicked judge. If God were to throw out your case without holding his word to be true, he would be a wicked kind of judge, but he's not. And thereby the gospel has a characteristic of justice. So Jesus became a curse for us. And this is where I want to draw us back to that 2 Corinthians 5 passage. He who knew no sin became sin for us. God is holding up his word. Now, if we go back to our Old Testament reading uh, in Deuteronomy, you'll remember that the Bible says anybody who is hung on a tree is cursed of God. In fact, if you go a little bit further here in verse 13, you'll see it. It's repeated. Paul quotes from Deuteronomy. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Now, this is an important question to ask. Um, does Jesus have sin? Oh boy, we got I didn't hear a single audible answer. Let me see if I can get this right. Not a trick question. Does Jesus have sin? No. You ought to be quick with that right away. Jesus is perfect in his nature. Fully God, no sin. But he died on a cross. And the Bible says that those who are hung on a tree or hung on a cross are cursed. Jesus in his dying carried the technical aspect of God's law, meaning primarily being cursed such as he can be a substitute for you and I because God is upholding justice. Jesus cried out on the cross, do you remember? My God, my God. How's it, how's it end? Why have you... Yeah, I, I've heard pastors preach before, uh, and God turned his back on Jesus at that point. And I, I struggle with that a little bit because I don't think that's what was going on. I think instead, God's forsaking of his own son wasn't his turning his back, unless you want to qualify that in God's loving kindness is turned away. But do you know what is poured out fully on Jesus in that moment? It's God's justice for sin. Now, we have a word for that. It's called wrath. God's wrath is being poured out on Jesus on the cross, and thereby Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because sin and God can't live together. They don't mix. They don't go together. And so for Jesus to be the one who fulfills the technical aspect of the law and 
the word of God in that, listen to this, he died thereby fulfilling Genesis, which says that if you eat of this, you will die. And so Jesus' death fulfills that. But in a greater sense, the justice is also for those who have been accursed. The gospel is justice. Now, let me just press pause on my sermon for a moment because I, w- I have worked to educate myself into the atheist and the agnostic community because it's a growing movement in our world today. And one of the things that you find, uh, unfortunately, even in the kind of cultural environment that we're in for justice, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. You catch that on the news. Whether it's racial justice or any other kind of justice needs to be served. Many times, those people will be non-Christians. Something wrong with that. We should be, above all people, those seeking justice. But do you know what the ultimate justice is for people? It's eternal separation from God. That's what it is. Now, are you guilty of sin that would earn you that this morning? Come on, be honest. Are you guilty? Yeah. Are they guilty? Yes. And so we should be more than anybody, those who are trying to appeal to the world to say, if you're concerned about justice... Let me give you a huge warning. You yourself will be held to account for your sins by one true God. And by the way, if you are an atheist and you don't believe in that, what hope do you have for justice? Every single murderer and rapist, every child abuser that's out there will ultimately not have to pay if there is no God. But if there is a God, and he's a good, just God... He will hold sin accounted for. We believe he already has in his son. And so we are those who are redeemed. We have a message to share with them. But ultimate justice is something that can only be found, not in atheism, but only in Christianity. For God will bring every act, whether done hidden or in the open, he will bring it to justice. Okay, so number three, the good news is about justice. Number four, the good news is substitutionary. Now, Good luck spelling that word. I'm thankful I have spell check. Let me give it to you. S-U-B-S-T-I-T-U-T. That's the one that I get. I forget that one. I-O-N-A-R-Y. Just Google it when you get home. (laughs) Substitutionary means that within this transaction, it was done in someone's place. So let me have you once more turn again to verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse, what's it say? For us. I'd love it if you're in the habit of writing in your Bible, if you wrote the word me right above the word us. Make it personal. Now, it's true, God uh, did send his son to die and become a curse on behalf of the world, right? But for those who believe are those who have that atonement applied onto their lives, But you need to remind yourself how personal this is. And the word for this is called substitution. So I'm going to ask Peggy and Teresa to help me. So I need you to get your Bibles. I'm going to give each of you a verse. I'm going to have you come up here and just read it here for everybody. So um, Teresa, if you're ready, you'll be first. Your verse is John 3, 16 through 18. John 3.16. Who thinks Teresa needs help with that one? Right? Um, it's verse 17 and 18 that I want her to focus in on. So John 3.16, 6, 17, and 18. And Peggy, yours is going to be 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. 1 Corinthians. So you ladies can make your way up here. 
What I want you to know as they're uh, coming up to share these verses is that without Jesus, you are already cursed. There is no additional curse that needs to be given to you. Your brokenness and fallenness in this world has already precluded you as one provided for you, allowed to maintain in your life an element of God's wrath. It is without Jesus, it is inherited in your nature because we have a fallen nature. Teresa, read our first one for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Thank you. Just a quick comment on that. We're so used to John 3.16, right? Everybody knows that. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, all who believe in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. If you continue, though, you'll notice what Jesus says, is that all those who don't believe, they stand condemned how? Already. Already. That, that's your natural state. Cursedness is on you. Whether you knew it or not, it's already there. Thank you for that one. Peggy, will you read your... If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Come, O Lord. Thank you. Uh, if you've heard of the term Maranatha before, uh, if in Aramaic you pronounce it Maranatha, it means come, O Lord. Come, Lord is what the word means. A lot of people are used to that, but the beginning of that verse is one that a lot of people miss, which says, if anyone doesn't love the Lord, let him be cursed. Not, not meaning put anything additional on him, but let him have the nature that he desires. God won't force anybody to love him. God makes the gift, the offer, it's free. It's there for you. Redemption could be yours. But if you don't want it, that's up to you. God will let you remain under a curse, but there's nothing additional that comes with it. This is why Jesus becoming a curse is substitutionary on our behalf. You deserved the punishment that he took. You deserved it, but instead it was given to Jesus and not to you. Now, I said I was going to move fast, and I've kind of taken my time, and we, oh boy, I'd love to just preach more on this if, if, if I could. Number five, let me, let me get through the rest of these. The good news is a blessing. Uh, if you look into verse 14, he says, He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Two things here that you can think of the blessing. Number one, Abraham uh, was going to be uh, given a family that would ultimately be God's children. The family of Abraham are God's people. So the blessing of Abraham is to belong to who? God's people. That's the blessing. Now, that's evidenced for us by the indwelling of the Spirit. So the second half of that blessing is that you are given the Holy Spirit. So those two things, they, they really are inseparable. So I want you to know that the good news is a blessing. That's the result of it. If you are those who are redeemed, you are now welcomed into God's family, and you're given the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing the inheritance that will come at resurrection. Number, number six, lastly here, the good news is exclusive. The good news is exclusive. And this is where I kind of began the message. It's an either-or type of situation. You 
either contribute your little piece to it and then God does the rest or God does it all. It's one or the other. Either you have to do some type of work to to engage this thing or God does it all. Those are exclusive options. And the gospel, the good news is exclusive. I want you to see this in verse 12. So just go back a little bit. It says, the law is not based on what? On faith. Those are separate. And so the good news, it is exclusive. If you are of any type of a church tradition or a persuasion from a poorly preached evangelical church that you have something to contribute, let me free you from that lie. Jesus has done it all. He has done it all. Here's the application uh, that I have for you. Faith is the conduit of the gospel. And so, uh, Phil, I want to ask if you could come back up here just for one quick second. Yeah, the game of hot lava is one where if you stand on the ground, you die, right? And you got to start over. Well, the law makes you a prisoner to it because you can't, you can't do it. And so what that looks like is it looks like you can continually pulling yourself up. And maybe in your life you've had a version of Christianity that feels like completeness and wholeness is contingent on my ability to just try harder. And maybe you've heard those voices of, come on, you can do it, or you make it, try harder, or why can't you make it happen? I want you to know that that's not faith. Instead, and Phil, if you could put your feet up on the rungs, because I don't want you to step in hot lava here, right? Get them off the ground. There you go. What is Phil doing here for safety? He's putting all of his faith in what? In the chair. Now, if he puts any weight on the ground, what is he showing? He thinks some of it is where? Some of it's up to him, and then some is on the chair. But if he, if he even touches the ground, what is he? Come on, hot lava, you know the rules, right? You're done. You're done. You, you, you're, you're toast if any of it touches the ground. And so in order for Phil to be saved, how much of his weight does he have to put onto this stool? All of it. Now, I'd love for this message to be a part one and a part two so that I could take the time to really talk about faith, but I just want to leave you with this image. I want to leave you with this picture that what faith looks like for the believer is 100% of my confidence and trust being put on a work that has already been completed, that has already been done, and that I am in no way shackled to that idea of self-effort that's so common in our world today.